This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and I'm glad you're joining us for another episode in our series titled Yes. In this episode, we're sticking with the book of Nehemiah, and Pastor Jeff is going to encourage us to overcome fear when we're called to God's work. He also shares some faith projects that have come to fruition in his church community. Let's join Pastor Jeff with his message about faith over fear. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Man, I'm so glad you're here this weekend. We're in Nehemiah 2. All right, here's how we're going to begin today. When is the last time you took a risk? I mean, a big risk. Okay, have you ever in your entire life taken a risk? I mean, I'm talking about something like you, you tried a new sport you've never tried before. Maybe you, maybe you tried a new career. I mean, that's risky. You moved to a new state. You decided to have children. Talk about risk. You decided to get married. Huge risk. Uh, you decided to invest in something that you were told could bring great dividends. Risk. Come on now. Cliff diving. Anybody ever decided to dive off a cliff? What about whitewater rafting? Have been whitewater rafting? You ever done that? Whitewater rafting or maybe bungee jumping. Anybody bungee jumped? Man, this is a risk-free environment here. Man, part of risk is, is part of life is risking. It's when you, the adrenaline starts going. It's when, man, you don't know what's going to happen. And if you don't ever take risks, man, it's just a mundane life. It really is. You can get in a rut. And so the challenge I have for you as we start this chapter in the book of Nehemiah is just really take measure of your life. Are, are you in a rut that's just nothing's really going right now? You're just so bored and you're so tired. Nothing exciting's happening. Nothing exhilarating. The, the problem is, and here's what most of us know, as soon as we decide we're going to take a risk, what's the next thing that happens? Shortly after you make that decision, fear, debilitating fear, comes walking through the door wearing the following type of t-shirts. You know, can I really do this? Do I have what it takes? Will the, how will this change my life? What will this require of me? What sacrifices will I have to make? Will it all be worth it at the end? So, most of us, this is not theory. It's, it's practical, pragmatic living, isn't it? When I asked my wife, Robin, to marry me, before I asked her, I knew this was good. If she said yes, it was going to be one of the greatest decisions that she's ever made. 
And I knew, I knew that if she said yes, my life was totally going to change. And you know, when I asked my wife, it's not like many of the guys, you know, you're not supposed to ask the question unless you know the answer, right? Well, I asked the question and I didn't know the answer. So that just made it that much more exciting, exhilarating. Now, when she said yes, ecstasy, man, she said yes. But it, it didn't take but about two seconds for me to say, oh my goodness, what have I done? You see what I mean? As soon as you jump out there and you risk something, you take a chance, it's not too long. It's like you go from risk to, to doubt in 0.2 seconds. And I can promise you, and this message applies to every area and every arena of life. I can promise you, as soon as you say, yes, I'm going to do something, fear will try to own you. It's going to overwhelm you. You're going to feel like that you're, you can't breathe, that you can't catch your breath, that your head is just beneath the surface, and you're never going to make it to the top to catch your next breath so that you can live. Now, that's life right there. But here's the deal. It's what you do in that moment that changes everything. It's what you do when you feel like, oh my, I've taken a risk and I'm drowning. I can't breathe. It's what you decide in that next moment that determines the rest of your life. It determines the quality of your life. It determines how life is exhilarating or if it's boring and mundane. Nehemiah understood that dynamic so well. He's got a call of God to build the city of God. But he knows how people are. And he knows that even though it's a wondrous and beautiful vision, that he's certain of the call of God on his life, that he's going to do something that truly matters. He's going to build the city of God. He visualizes the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, the city of God being built among the pagans. He imagines that there'll be poverty snuffed out in the city, that the neighbors will be loving and helping each other, that the children will be playing in the streets in a place of safety. They'll no longer be abused or enslaved. He sees one day the word of God's going to be read out loud in the streets of the city. He knows that this vision that God has given him will culminate in ultimate joy for the people of God. I mean, pure joy. He still proceeded with great caution. Why? Because he knows people. Let me take you to the word. Here's what Nehemiah does. He goes on a little private walk. So remember, he's heard the call of God to build a city of God in the city of man, but he hasn't told the people yet. And the Bible says in Nehemiah 2.11, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. So he's just got a small party of people, a band of brothers here. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts, no horses, in other words, with me, except the one I was riding on. So he's riding, the other guys are walking. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the Jacal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials, pay close attention to verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was even doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Did you catch that? The vision's fantastic, gonna bring incredible joy, but I haven't told anybody yet because you're gonna have to work to get it. 
Now, you see what he's doing? He's a wise leader. You ever heard the name, and I think I mentioned Charles Blondin years ago. Charles Blondin's the guy that used to walk across Niagara Falls. I mean, on a, this was actually from 1857 to 1860 on a three and a quarter inch diameter rope. He walked across it numerous times, blindfolded. He pushed a wheelbarrow across. He walked across on stilts. One time he carried a man on his back, his manager. One time he walked across halfway, sat down and cooked an omelet. Near the end of his career in April 1860, I believe, he thought to himself, what am I doing and why do I keep doing this? So there was a large crowd gathered there to watch him on one of his final walks. And he said to the people, my name is Charles Blondin. Do you believe in me? Of course, all the people, yeah. The second time, my name is Charles Blondin. Do you believe in me? Yeah. Third time, my name is Charles Blondin. Do you believe in me? Yeah. And then he said, okay, who will go with me? <laughs> True story. Nobody. It's one thing to say, this is a great work. It's another thing to say, I'm in. I'll go across. You can push me in the wheelbarrow. I'll ride on your back. In 2.16, Nehemiah said, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He's so wise. He knew that as badly as people wanted to build a city and they knew that building the city of God was the right thing to do that would bring unparalleled satisfaction that goes way down in deep. He also knew they'd be terrified of the hard work ahead. They would be scared or afraid of the king, what the king might think, that maybe while they were repairing the walls and building the city of God, that they would be attacked by foreign invaders. They were afraid they'd be mocked and ridiculed along the way. And actually they were in chapter two, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, let me just stop there for a moment. There will always be those who question our motives. Anytime you, as an individual, attempt greatness, take a great risk, or as a church, attempt greatness, take a great risk, there will always be those who say, hey, you're not building the city of God, you're building the city of man. This is about your power and your authority and anxiety. So I just want to take a moment and look at this. Usually, Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshem, they get a bad rap. Uh, on the one hand, you could understand the reason they're accusing the Israelites of trying to fortify their nation to overthrow the king is because that's usually what happens. You rebuild the city so that you can take power and authority. It's deception and betrayal. So on one hand, you can kind of see why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. Now, can we apply that to us? I know as we start this journey, I want you to hear me on this now. I know that as we start this journey, many of you have been hurt. You've been wounded. You've been manipulated and coerced and abused. And I am so sorry. You know, Gandhi said, I like their Christ, but not their Christian. Many leaders have acted in such a way that tarnishes the name of Jesus. I know that. But you can't let past experiences stifle future success. I have ears. Elephants have ears but that doesn't make me an elephant. Just because we have one thing in common doesn't mean we have everything in common. Remember what we said about Eileen Gruder. I love this quote. I've used it so many times. This is what she says about mediocre lives. 
when you're afraid of the future because of something happened in the past. She says, you can live on bland food so as to avoid an ulcer. Drink no tea, coffee, or other stimulants. Go to bed early. Stay away from nightlife. Avoid all controversial subjects so as to never give offense. Mind your own business. Avoid involvement in other people's problems. Spend money on only necessities and save all you can. And you can still break your neck in the bathtub and it'll serve you right. You can't live your entire life based on something you experienced in the past. My wife, my wife is an adrenaline junkie. I don't get it because I'm the opposite. I just want to sit in a cafe and drink coffee. She jumps out of airplanes. She did for uh, her 53rd birthday. She, she loves to bungee jump. She bungee jumped off Victoria Falls. People have died doing that. Seriously. She loves walking with lions in Africa at a place called Antelope Park. She does, she's not afraid of animals. And she, hang, she, she actually went hang gliding in him at last year. This is a crazy woman. <laughs> and I say to her, why would you do those things? Because fear. That's why I don't do them. The older you get, the more knowledge you have of everything that could go wrong. And things do go wrong. The parachute may not open. It happens one in 100,000 times. But I'm special, so I would be the one. You understand? The bungee cord could break. It does one in 500,000 times. The lion could eat you. It happens. I don't know the odds, and frankly, I don't care. The problem is that if you live life this way, you'll never do anything worthwhile. It'll be a waste of your life. After all, the odds of dying while riding a bicycle are one in 500,000. I know that. I've experienced that. You can die in a canoe, one in 10,000, and I've done that. And you can die in a car, one out of 77 do and yet you drive every day. You got more chance of dying in your car than you do jumping out of an airplane. Go figure. The reality is Nehemiah knows all of this, and he knows that sometimes because of past failures that the people will be afraid. And he knows that kind of failure and that kind of fear will lead to nothingness, but we are not called. We are not given a spirit of timidity and fear We've got the power of God in us that's supposed to lead to greatness. So in verse seven, then I said to them, notice how he relates to the people. You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be disgraced. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Now, here's what this tells me. No matter what you're facing in life, so if you, even if you're not interested in where I'm taking you in Nehemiah, this is special to every risk you ever take in life, okay? No matter what the vision is, there's gotta be three things. There's gotta be one, a calling. Two, a passion. And three, faith. There's gotta be a calling and it's gotta be sure. And there's gotta be a passion, a heartfelt passion way down deep inside. And then, and only then, will that lead to faith. Action-filled faith. The breakdown of any one of those three results in failure. Calling, passion, and faith. Let's deal with the first one. A calling, a sure calling. Nehemiah knew that the people would be temporarily motivated because of their shame. Hebrews were a proud people. And he said, look around at the city, man. Look at this. We're the laughing stock. But he also knew that they knew they were in this situation because God had abandoned them, but God had abandoned them because of their sin. 
And so they're not going to be convinced that God will be with them unless God does something to show them that I will rebuild the city of God. So here's what Nehemiah told them. He said, let me tell you about this foreign king. He gave me permission to go and build the city of God. They're going to say, no way. That, you got to understand that just doesn't happen. A foreign king does not give you permission to go and fortify your city so that you can overthrow the king and take power. Nobody does that. And he said, not only that, the king gave me official letters and he gave me even some of his own authority so that I could pass through hostile territory. And he gave a letter to me from ASAP or for ASAP who ran the timber yard. And ASAP was gonna give him free timber owned by the king, so that he can rebuild the walls and the city and even build his own house while he's working on the wall. You've seen these little shacks on construction site? Well, the king said, Nehemiah, take all the wood you want, build yourself a mansion, live there while you're building and working on the wall in the city. Now, do you understand these implications here, folks? Imagine Donald Trump. Oh, everybody looked up. Imagine Donald Trump going to Bill Clinton. And saying to Bill Clinton, as you know, the election is not too far away. I would like to speak at the Democratic Convention. I would like you to give me a letter of recommendation to the Democratic Party. I would like access to all the Democratic funding. And I would like you to pay for my hotel room during the week of the convention. The only way that's going to happen is what? Divine intervention. It would have to be an act of God because that ain't never going to happen. And that's exactly what Nehemiah says to the people. Verse eight again, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my request. Oh my, guys, look, look at, what, look at what's already happened. God has shown that he's with us, he's for us. We can build the city of God and the city of man. And their response, they were so overwhelmed with what they had heard, they said, let's do it, let's roll, let's get this thing done, let's start rebuilding the city of God. Now, can we do a quick comparison? Can we take a look at us? Is God's favor on us? Is his favor on us? I have never been part of a place where so many people who were far from God have come near. I have never been at any place in my entire life in ministry. And I've been in Africa and New Zealand, and now I'm here. And the amount of people that have been in darkness that have come into light, never been part of something of this magnitude. I have never seen you know, I gave our worship team a challenge a few years ago. I said, guys, I want you to not only write songs for us. I want you to write songs for the world. And you heard another one. The Spirit of God is on these guys. And I'm convinced that God is going to use them to change the world and to reach the next generation. Not a day goes by that I don't walk through that courtyard and I see pastors like Dane and Dawn and Nancy and Gary praying for people. So much ministry happening here all the time. And I've got so many testimonies of marriages restored and addictions healed and people willing to pray. Man, you can't manufacture that. That prayer meeting here, you, can't, you keep hearing me talk about it because you can't manufacture it. You can't, you can't make something like that happen. Only the, God will open the windows of heaven. And what he tends to do is he does that at the time that he's getting ready to move. And he does that so that I don't get the glory or you get the glory, but he gets the glory. Because it all happened when we started praying. I think of the favor that we've had with the hundreds that come down and receive Christ and are baptized. I think of him sending us a Jeremiah or a Stephen or a Rory or a Dale or a Justin for our kids. And then I think of Tom Sweeney, how that relationship happened. And my wife came to me and she, you know how women are. Uh-oh, better be careful here. 
You know how women are. They're very spiritual. And when they see things from God, they pass it along to their husbands. How was that? So she, thank you. So she came to me and she said, hey, you got to meet this guy. You have to meet this guy. And she kept doing it again and again because she was concerned about me. You got to meet this guy. And then I meet this guy, Tom Sweeney. And then God has given this principal of one of our schools in this valley a vision. And we got together and it just started firing me up, the possibility. And now part of our vision simply because of Tom Sweeney and our relationship with him and I've tried, I'm not a good drawer, but I want to show you what this ultimate vision is for our valley. In the middle of this valley, through our ministry with Tom Sweeney, we're going to have a care center. This care center is going to be a place. This is about helping people. There's so much poverty and there's so many people who are really trying. They can't get their head above water. We get their names from the local school districts. We know who's trying and who's struggling. We're gonna create this care center right in the middle of our valley and every campus. This care center is counseling. It's addiction recovery. It's marriage counseling. It's any problem that the people have in our community that's hurting our community and breaking up our families. We're saying that we're gonna do something about it. We're gonna not just talk a big game. Yeah, we're helping our community. We're gonna do it. And God has put his hand on us for such a time as this. Now, people will say, Jeff, I had no idea this many things were happening. And we try our best to tell you all the things that are happening, but I can't tell you everything because there's only so much time in a service. Look, the only people, and I say this as kind as I can, the only people who don't know everything that's happening around here are the people who are still outside the donut shop looking in. They love the look of the donuts, but they just won't walk in the door and take one. You gotta come on the inside and see how nice they are. Nehemiah demonstrated to his people how God had shown them favor. And they said, let's start building. Notice how he relates to the people. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be disgraced. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Now, here's what this tells me. No matter what you're facing in life, so if, even if you're not interested in where I'm taking you in Nehemiah, this is special to every risk you ever take in life, okay? No matter what the vision is, there's gotta be three things. There's gotta be one, a calling. Two, a passion, and three, faith. There's gotta be a calling and it's gotta be sure. And there's gotta be a passion, a heartfelt passion way down deep inside. And then, and only then will that lead to faith, action-filled faith. The breakdown of any one of those three results in failure. Calling, passion, and faith. Let's deal with the first one, a calling, a sure calling. Nehemiah knew that the people would be temporarily motivated because of their shame. Hebrews were a proud people. And he said, look around at the city, man. Look at this. We're the laughing stock. But he also knew that they knew they were in this situation because God had abandoned them, but God had abandoned them because of their sin. And so they're not going to be convinced that God will be with them unless God does something to show them that I will rebuild the city of God. So here's what Nehemiah told them. He said, let me tell you about this foreign king. He gave me permission to go and build the city of God. They're going to say, no way. That, you got to understand that just doesn't happen. A foreign king does not give you permission to go and fortify your city so that you can overthrow the king and take power. Nobody does that. And he said, not only that, the king gave me official letters and he gave me even some of his own authority so that I could pass through hostile territory. 
And he gave a letter to me from ASAP or for ASAP who ran the timber yard. And ASAP was going to give him free timber owned by the king. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. This message applies to every area and every arena of life. I can promise you, as soon as you say, yes, I'm gonna do something, fear will try to own you. It's gonna overwhelm you. You're gonna feel like that you're, you can't breathe, that you can't catch your breath, that your head is just beneath the surface and you're never gonna make it to the top to catch your next breath so that you can live. Now that's life right there. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.